Wow. Can they do that again about five more times? That was very touching. I tell you, uh, my, my eyes just swelled up and I'm thinking, that's not, they're, they're not my children. Okay, what, what is this emotion? And I think it was just to, to watch God's creatures use what they have to worship Him. Um, they, a reminder that they were created to worship God and here they are worshiping God and the community of the saints. What a beautiful thing to witness. And I don't know where Rachel disappeared, but thank you for the hard work in um, overseeing that and for the instruction. I'm ready for part two. That was beautiful. Thank you. And it's, it's a reminder of, um, as I just kind of watched the worship team and then that offering, how this church accommodates young people and ministry. It's always been um, an atmosphere where children have an opportunity to own their faith and experience a trial and error sometimes, how God would have them to live and what their gifts are and how they can praise and worship Him. And I, I appreciate this church family and how accommodating you are uh, for our young ones to, to enable them and help them and create this atmosphere where they can learn who God is and what it means to worship Him and serve Him. It's a beautiful place to be this morning. And I praise God for this place and for your hearts and your souls and for the presence of His Holy Spirit. We're very blessed. We want to turn our eyes to God's Word now in Nehemiah chapter 11. And we're in this book, and this book is a historical account. And it's real people and real places. And basically, we are witnessing this era or this moment of history where a people who had strayed from God are now making every effort to turn their lives back to God and rebuild what we would call lives of worship, where God is once again at the center of all things. And we all know how easy it is for us to focus on the wrong things and kind of push God to the edges a little bit. Um, and get caught up with the things of this world or our own hearts and desires. And we often suffer for it. And by God's grace, he brings us back. And God is bringing his people back into his presence. And they had been in exile as a form of discipline. The remnant has returned. A small part of the Jewish people have returned to the promised land. And they are in the midst of rebuilding their lives. And we have watched this. And... We watched them come back in small numbers, and uh, which is a big step. And first, they were very excited to just build the foundations to the temple. And then through Zerubbabel and others, they were able to build the temple and worship the Lord. And that's one of the first things they did to show that their priorities were straight before they invested in their homes and the city walls. They built the temple so God could be worshipped. And then after that, under the instruction of Nehemiah... They were able to build the wall. And you'll remember Nehemiah's story. He was serving the king of Persia as a cupbearer. Just a, a person of God. And the spirit of God began to grip his heart. And he had this passion for God's people and the holy city. He had a passion to see God worship once again. And his people thrive as they did before. And so he prays for an opportunity to go back and head this new movement up. And the Lord answered that prayer. And so after about 140 years, I mean, they have the remnant is several generations old now. And after approximately 141 years of 
the, the walls just laying in ruins under his organizing skills and being empowered by the spirit just in 52 days, short on manpower and, and heavy on opposition. They were able to rebuild the walls of the city. And so we're watching this movement take place and we're getting to see how God works in people's lives and what they can accomplish simply by turning their eyes back to the Lord. They are able to accomplish things that they could not accomplish before. And that's true in our lives as well. There's parts of our lives that may be in ruins. Maybe we've forsaken the Lord and we're, we're working very hard to, to improve our relationship and work back up into that place of devotion and intimacy. When we turn our eyes on Him, amazing things can happen. Maybe this morning amazing things will happen in our hearts as we devote ourselves just to hearing from God and His Word. And so there they are under Nehemiah's leadership. Uh, in chapter 9, we saw this long prayer and their history. And here they are, they're gathered around God's Word. I mean, they're availing themselves to the, the hearing and the preaching of God's Word for hours on end, as if they can't get enough of it. And then they had times of repentance. And they've had celebrations of praise. At one time, there were about, uh, and then, then they rebuilt the city, and they're strengthening the city. And there was about, we believe, maybe 50,000 people in the days of Nehemiah there. So what's the next step? The people are turning their hearts to God. The temple's built. The walls are there. So what do they need now? Well, according to Nehemiah's leadership, they need more people to continue to strengthen the city, to continue to protect it and to make it a place where they can thrive spiritually and physically and just turn it into a nice, peaceful community of worshipers as they were meant to be. And so Nehemiah is looking for more people to come and join in the vision of of rebuilding this into a great city. And you'll remember that one of the words, well, the words that we closed with in the previous chapter, the people made a covenant with God and their final words were, we will not neglect the household of God. And the idea is, you know, we did neglect it. And we've learned a hard lesson, but we're not going to let that happen anymore. And part of not neglecting the household of God is rebuilding the city and strengthening the city. So now they need more people, according to Nehemiah, because, you know, cities are busy places. The temple's a busy place. There's just a lot of manpower that is needed for that many people to, to function properly and for things to happen as they should, for people to remain safe and well cared for. Um, that's city life. You know, it's interesting. Cities are busy places and there is a lot of manpower uh, necessary. I've never really lived in the city before much, but um, this last, the second to last snowstorm where we were supposed to really get dumped on and we didn't get dumped on as much as we thought we would, but the Weather Channel showed some old pictures of the city uh, undergoing storms, and I think the ones I was looking at were mostly in New York, in New York and they get two or three feet of snow, and you think, well, what did they do before snow plows and things? Um, when, when you have this much snow on the sidewalks and the narrow streets. And what they did is they got their mules and their horses and their carts. And they came in the city and then you got lots of people. And they got their shovels. And they shoveled the snow into the carts. And they carted all of that snow 
uh, tons after ton after ton of snow outside the city and dump it somewhere. You can't just wait for it to melt. So there's a lot going on in cities. Practical things, spiritual things, and that's what's happened in the days of Nehemiah. So he needs more people. And the way it stood at that point was that uh, a lot of the people were out in the villages. They were out in the country. So how do you get people that are in the country or in the villages to come and live in the towns? And why aren't more people living in the city? Well, if we asked ourselves that question, we live in a rural community. We're kind of country people. Why don't we live in the city? Well, there may be different reasons. Some of us may just prefer the country life. We like country living. We like open spaces. We, you know, we like dirt. We like pasture. Um, we prefer the smells of maybe uh, animal manure as opposed to factory pollution, whatever it may be. But we may just have a personal preference. So we choose to live in the country. Other people may live in the country because, hey, this is this is dad's place and granddaddy and great granddaddy and great, great, great granddaddy. It's been in the family all this all these years. And and that my my granddaddy built that barn and great granddaddy built that structure. And it's just who we are. And I'm going to stay here. And it's kind of my my place in life and my inheritance. And I take a lot of pride in it. And so that happens, too. Some people may live in the country just because they can actually make a better living out there. Maybe it's more conducive to their skills. So there's just different reasons why we in our day may choose to live in the country, why they in their day chose to live in the country. Another reason, although we don't have this as a reason, um, is that in that day and time, if you recall, it was kind of dangerous to live in the city because if there was going to be an attack, if there was going to be opposition in that day, they were going to they were going to catch the city first. Uh, people didn't want Israel to build the city back up. They didn't want them to become strong and stable where they could educate their children and, and just really teach them about the things of life and worship their God. They were against that. So if there was going to be attack, an attack, the city would feel it. So. It wasn't the safest place, and maybe some people just felt safer out in the country. I think that's part of what we feel, too. You know, if there's going to be a power outage or a riots and things like that, city's not a good place to be. Now, out here in the country, it would probably take a little bit more than that to get us that riled up or too far away from each other. So safety. Then there's another possible reason that didn't dawn on me, but Matthew Henry brought to my attention his commentary about why people might prefer the country instead of the city. If you think about the city life in, in Israel, one of the reasons may be that they just didn't want the spiritual accountability. Because to live in the city is to live in the center of the place of worship. Um, that's There wasn't separation of church and state. This is a theocracy. Everything you did was a part of your spiritual lives. The civil and the ceremonial, God's law spoke into every aspect of life. And so you almost the time of day was was governed by what happened in the temple. You know, there were certain days you were supposed to do certain things and times. And so. If you didn't want that kind of accountability, you might not want to be in the city. And that's where the priests were, all the temple servants were. There was just this constant reminder of God and his place 
in our lives. So, you know, if they were lukewarm or just not quite there, not that serious about God, they might want to remain a little more anonymous. It's kind of like, um, let's just say this little circle out here between our driveways, a little piece of grass that Corky loves. The guys love to cut that little piece of grass out there every season. Let's just say you live, there's a house there and you lived in it. Now, that's close to church. And every time there's an event at church, people are going to be passing by your house. So let's just say Sunday morning, you, you don't really feel like going to church that morning. And people are going to be passing your house and they might just happen to see the glow of the TV in the living room. You might not appreciate that. You might want the freedom to just kind of do what you want to do. Because every time there was an event at church, people would pass by your house because you're just so close to the center of worship. Now, why aren't they at this prayer meeting? And don't they know it's sacrifice time and all these opportunities? So it's, it's possible that that is one of the reasons. But for whatever reason, they just needed more city slickers, people to move into the city. So here is what they did. First of all, uh, to... To repopulate the city or to get more people in there, they appointed leaders. There were a lot of leaders. Cities are busy places. There's a lot of responsibilities. The temple services itself had a lot of requirements and responsibilities. So it took a lot of manpower to govern these things. And so there were people appointed to that. That was their job. It was their responsibility. And if you're if you work in the city, you have to be close to your work. You know, it's a kind of a 24-7 thing in those days, some of the demands. Um, so they didn't have vehicles like we do where we can, we can live 50, 60 miles away from where we work and just make that commute back and forth, back and forth. And that day, you lived where you worked. And so Nehemiah wanted to cover all his bases, so he's been building this team. He's been appointing leaders in different places. We're going to see more of this in this book as well. So there's a lot of projects happening. There's still building taking place. Kids are being educated. Temples being served. You know, the dung at the dung gate has to be carried out. And the fish at the fish gate have to be carried out. There's just a lot of things going on in the city. They still need guards to protect them. People up on the wall. Nehemiah appointed singers and choirs for the worship team there. They were stationed on walls. We'll see more of that and things to come. So in order for it to thrive and to be a place of order, you need a lot of people in charge. So there were leaders there and they stayed there and they and they lived there. And leaders are an important part of God's economy. That still was not enough. How do you get more people to come in the city? So the second thing they did was they just went to. Well, they, they just prayed. And during the praise and prayer after the service, they made it known that there is need for there's a need for more people to live in the city. And so you were willing if the spirit led you, then they would say, please move into the city. That's actually not at all what took place. I haven't read the scripture yet, have I? What they did. Did I not read the scripture yet? Okay, it's coming. I'm getting ready to read verse 1. That's not at all what they did yet. They actually needed more people, so they drew lots to determine 
who in the villages would move into the city. So it's kind of like letting God volunteer you. It's like a providential draft for you to be relocated. Verse 1, let me go back and read. Let me go back and read the first two verses. Now, the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. And the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city. While nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. So you had your leaders. Then they cast lots. Now, casting lots is kind of like drawing straws. Flipping coins, maybe throwing the dice. And the whole idea is that it's a way for you to make a decision uh, that's impartial. There's no bias. There's no prejudice. There's no affirmative action. There's nothing imposed upon you on why you have to do the, the, the thing that you want to do. It is, it is leaving it up um, not to chance. It's leaving it up to God and let him speak in this situation. So rather than imposing this upon people, they cast lots. And that way people can't come and complain and say, you know, you chose me because you got a grudge against me and you're ruining my life and gets really chaotic and messy. They just cast lots. And of course, you got to be willing to, to play that game. And there needs to be a, a willingness or a devotion or a certain amount of trust for us to even enter into that, be willing to do that. But that's what they did. So it's kind of like throwing names into a hat and picking a name. It's just a, one way to do it. And that's the way that they did it in that day, especially when there's decisions that needed to be made that just weren't clear. God hadn't spoken specifically into that situation. And these are pretty important decisions that they've made. I didn't draw attention to it, but back in chapter 10, verse 34, one of the duties that they had was supplying firewood for the temple so they can have their sacrifices. You know, that's work. Cutting wood, splitting wood, and so forth. Somebody's got to go out into the country, get it, and bring it into the city. So they didn't just pray that God would raise up volunteers to do this. They cast lots. And if your name was chosen, you had firewood duty for the temple. So it's a way that they did things. And they really did trust the Lord to use it as a means to hear his will. And we see this in Proverbs 16:33. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So it's, it's not chance. It's just another means to hear from God. And you know, it doesn't sound very spiritual, does it? To flip a coin or to draw a straw. Man, I got the short one. And, and it could have just completely just worked out the other way. I mean, if we did this again, I probably wouldn't get the short one. And it doesn't seem very spiritual, but it was a way for them to providentially put their trust in the Lord. It's risky. And you might think, well, we don't cast lots anymore. We don't hear a lot about that in church. We don't do it. Well, actually, we do. In our elders' meetings, we do it. <laughs> if there's a situation, you know, we, we just, it's too hard to pray and fast. You know, Jesus said, this takes prayer and fasting. Just flip a coin and, and you get the, I'm totally teasing about that. Yeah. But um, 
Why don't we hear more about it in the New Testament? Well, many of the scholars think that there actually is an example. I'll share it with you. But many of the scholars think that uh, now we have the Holy Spirit. I mean, they, we have resources. You have resources to connect with God that Old Testament believers did not have. And we have the spirit of the living God in us who has promised to lead us and to direct us. And we have the word of God and we have gifted teachers that God has appointed. So we are very well equipped to hear the will of God or at least be given the tools to discern the will of God. And here's the example in the New Testament. It's actually a great example. And it's in the first chapter of Acts. Jesus has already ascended into heaven. So he's with the Father. And it's at, it's at Pentecost. And the Spirit is going to come. But they are gathered as Jesus' disciples. And they become aware of a need. They have to make a very important decision. Because they read in the Scriptures, in the Old Testament, that there's supposed to be 12 people in the position of apostleship. And it even said that there's another one to rise to fill the position of Judas. Judas Judas betrayed Christ and went out and hung himself. Acts 1.20 says, For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let another take his office. So they're reading the book of Psalms and they're like, This is us. This is our moment. They're talking about the apostles. We're minus one. We have to make the decision of who to put in this office. It goes on and says in verse 23, They put forward two. Joseph, called Barsabas, who was also called Justice. Three names. Hard to keep them straight. It's all one person. And then Matthias. So they prayed and they said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. That, that, that's intriguing to me because you have all of these different things taken into place. First thing, they did pray. They prayed and said, help us God, choose the person that is of your choice. And they also used their ability to discern. You know, they, they ruled out people that weren't fit. And they... Narrowed it down to just two, but they weren't sure which one of these two that God wanted. And so they let God providentially speak simply by casting lots. And they believed that they had heard from God and that was the person and it was never second guessed or anything. And so all that went into um, into this process and this very important decision. The New Testament doesn't rule it out. Um, it doesn't say that you are not to cast lots that I'm aware of. But again, the reason that we don't see much of it is because we have more resources, greater resources than they did, guided by the living God. And also, it can, you can imagine that there's just things, important decisions that uh, we don't need to be flipping coins over. And in that day, it took a tremendous amount of trust. But even in our day, it still takes trust. We are trusting that God is working in us. 
We're trusting His Spirit is leading us. We're trusting He is providentially bringing other people and other voices in the body of Christ into our lives. And by us trusting the Lord, He directs our steps. And that's an Old Testament passage that we can apply to today. We're just trusting. And when we might come to a fork in the road and we're really not sure what to do, we've gotten counsel, we've listened to God's gifted people and teachers, and we're still not sure where to go, we trust that God is guiding us and we just choose. You just pick one and you choose. And you trust that the Lord guides us. I think the key in all of that that we have to be careful for is to not trust in the circumstances, but to seek God. Not seek the answers over God. Because God promises our presence. Now, we don't always get the reassurance that we'd like to when we've made a decision. And that's where faith comes in and trust comes in. I'm trusting God to guide me to the best of my knowledge. This is what I need to do and I'm going to take that step. And that's a step of faith. It's a step of trust. That's what the Christian life is about. Because there's a lot of things that are not specifically revealed in God's word. So that's the place of it in the Old Testament. Today we have, you know, the spirit and things. And I would say that um, I think it's also a good reminder, maybe not sometimes to take life, take every decision so serious that we can't. If you just don't know what to do, just flip a coin and and do it because either way is okay. I think about as a kid growing up. There were I lived in this neat town and there were lots of families in this town. So I had lots of playmates and there were just different places that we would hang out, especially in the summertime. But throughout the year, it was O'Meara's Field. We played baseball, great flat place for baseball. And there was this other place where we'd hang out and just gather to play football. And the way that we would. We're just kids, you know, and the way that we would choose teams, sometimes you'd flip a coin to see who's going to be the captain. You didn't know who was going to show up, say, on that Saturday. And then to choose members, a lot of times you you do one potato, two potato, three potato, four. We, we, We came up with these just random ways to make decisions so the teams aren't stacked and, you know, one team gets clobbered. And we just trusted that's that's the way you do it. That's you're on this team because that's how it happened. And we had a great time. It wasn't fighting and all this other stuff. There's times where we just need to make a decision and move with it or flip a coin and move. And I'm not talking about serious spiritual things, but we don't want to take life too serious and pray and fast over every single thing. We can trust God in other ways as well. Wouldn't it be interesting, you know, Practically speaking, the bottom line is this. There are important needs in the ministry. There are important needs and responsibilities. There are things that have to happen in order for God to be worshipped properly. And they didn't make an announcement and wait for volunteers because these things had to take place. So they cast lots. In other words, they let God volunteer you. But it wasn't awaiting. So there's this responsibility. It's kind of like putting everybody's name on a list in the nursery or whatever. And just assuming since this is a need of the church and you attend this church, we're assuming that you see that this is something that's important. This is what has to happen in order for us to even be a church. So we're assuming that you're going to be a part of that and you're going to do your part. 
to make it happen. It's the same kind of idea. So they let God volunteer. And then the last way to repopulate the city was actually they had people volunteer. In verse 2, people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. So there were a, a minority of people who, in their devotion for God, they were the ones who saw, yes, this is something God is doing. God is on the move here. And there are true needs. And in my devotion to God, it's not just patriotism. In my devotion to God, I am willing to relocate. We sang a song in the ocean, uh, uh, a sentence in the ocean song that kind of gripped me. Um, of course, I can't remember it now that I need to share it with you. But it had something to do with trust without boundaries. Trust without boundaries. And I, I thought to myself, do I put boundaries on my trust like this is where I'm going to go, God, and this is it because this is what I want my life to look like. Do we put boundaries on our trust? I see here where these volunteers, they didn't put boundaries on their trust and their faith. I'm sure they were comfortable in their village homes. But they saw what God was doing and they followed the Lord in faith and trust. In other words, the faith determine where they would be and live and what they would do, not their own personal boundaries and ambitions. That's pretty powerful to want to be a part of God's movement. There are people today that relocate, relocate just because they see a movement of God. God is doing something here or there, and they're willing to relocate to be a part of what God is doing. That's faith. That's trust. Of course, missionaries do that, but people relocate to be a part of a church that they think that God would have them to serve. And it's a very, very powerful thing. And it's a sign of true devotion. There's examples in scriptures where people are devoted to God. And because they're devoted to God, they're devoted to serving others, that they feel that's what God's call is for them in their lives. The next sermon coming up, we're going to look at We're going to use the next chapter to give us a working definition of what does it really mean to worship? How would we define this word worship? It's just so broad and deep. And so we're going to use it, but we're going to look at three words to help us define it. But one of those words is devotion. You know, devotion, when we're devoted, that is a a very important aspect of what it means to worship God. Devotion. And there's some examples in the New Testament uh, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 16, the first converts, he's talking about the whole family of Stephanus, the first converts in Achaia who devoted themselves to the service of the saints. So that, they, they sense that that was what God would have them do right now in this movement. They devoted themselves to the service of the saints. And then again in 2 Corinthians 8, 5, he's talking about... Um, the generous members of the Macedonian churches who gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us. So there's this devotion, it's this idea. The people in Nehemiah's day, these families, because they were so devoted to God, they were willing to devote themselves to the city and the service of the city, the commonwealth, the common good for all. 
It's a very, very powerful thing. So in order to do the works of God, we first have to be devoted to God or other wise things, necessary things can fall through the cracks. The Nehemiah wants to build this city to be stronger and brighter and and, and to just um, fan the flame of the worship of God so that God could be worshipped and glorified as he deserves. And it's all intertwined. And so people are willing to be a part of that and see the necessity of it. It's a powerful, powerful thing taking place. So then the next thing we see that there are lots of people and therefore lots of responsibilities. And this kind of merges into the idea of leaders. There are leaders there, people that are um, appointed. And in verses 3 through 24, we see more genealogy. And I've talked about genealogy and the importance of it in the Jewish people, so I'm not going to talk about there but there's other little things happening within the genealogy that i want to draw attention to and that is it's not just family lines but it's also people being appointed to things so this is how the leadership work look for instance in verse 9 joel the son of zikri was the father was their overseer judah the son of hasmua was second over the city then verse 16 and Shabbatah and Josabad of the chiefs of the Levites who were over the outside work of the house of God. Verse 17, talking about the son of Aesop, who was the leader of the praise, who gave thanks. So there are these people in this thriving movement. There are leaders being appointed. There are people who are stepping up into new positions, people that are being shifted around to be able to serve, I guess, the most optimally and others that are just stepping down in order for the the movement of God to not grow stagnant. A lot of times people need to move on and God just shifts things around and shifts leaders around. Sometimes that means some of us have to step down or some of us have to serve in another way so that others can step up. So there's this constant influx of leadership and service. So there's creativity, there's new ideas, there's new energy that takes place so that it doesn't grow stagnant. When there's an opportunity, Nehemiah sees this. And so people are appointed to make sure the right things are happening. There's always a lot of lots of people and lots of responsibilities in any in any church. I'm thinking about if I if I am correct, we still are in need for a food coordinator to take Devin's place. So there's people move they're shifting. And then sometimes there's times uh, for others to step up. Um, we witnessed a transition with our sweetheart banquet, banquet where the Rays kind of mentored the Mosses in that. And now the Mosses are in charge of that ministry, the kind of local thing that we do here. Uh, we are in somewhat, we are witnessing somewhat of a transition in our worship and our worship team that the Lord is bringing about. And so change can be a good thing. And it's pointed out here in this passage. So Nehemiah, the great organizer, was constantly appointing people for the purposes of the city, for the purposes of the household of God. And then the second part of this has to do with the villages. And I won't spend much time with here, but there are still people that live in the towns. Let's read verses 25 through 36. And as for the villages with their fields, some of the people of Judah lived in Kiriath Arba and its villages, and in Divan and its villages, and in Jacob Ziel and its villages, 
and then Jeshua, and he goes on and on and on and talk, talks about approximately 15 villages here. So it's important for people to live in the villages as well. Because they need more people in the city doesn't mean they don't need people out in the country. Because many times it's the things that happen in the country that give the city the resources they need to thrive. So when they're building projects, when they need straight timber, you've got to go to the country boys to get to provide those straight logs for their building structures and uh, the dyes for the material and other things that need to be grown out in the country. So the village plays um, an important role, and these people play an important role outside of the city, but yet they're helping the city as well. And so that's pointed out in order for the city to function properly. But I want to close with just a reminder of God's grace, because there's a little treasure in this passage that I think is very, very powerful. There have been generations of people, even people of the remnant that have been back in Jerusalem now, because they've been there for several years. In verse 6, we find out something very fascinating. All the sons of Perez... He's talking about the generations and then appointing leaders. All the sons of Perez who lived in Jerusalem were 468 valiant men. Then verse 14, he's talking about more sons uh, and their brothers, mighty men of valor. So who are these mighty men of valor? What does it mean to be valiant? What well, means to be create, courageous? It means to be determined. It means to be focused. A, a, a valiant person is someone who is going to get the job done. They're, they're that courageous. Doesn't matter what it costs. They are absolutely determined and focused and strong and able to get the job done. So these are valiant men that have come back in the city. They've been put in some kind of position to rebuild it. And they're determined to see God play, praised and glorified. Powerful, powerful Servants of God. But what's interesting to me is, isn't just the fact that they're valued. It's their heritage. If you think back, who is Perez? These are sons of Perez. Well, who is this Perez? And how did his sons get so valiant? Perez, just to go back in Genesis 38. Perez was a literal son of Judah. Judah was... Uh, one of the 12 brothers. <clears throat> He's son number four. He's got Levi and Simeon and Simeon and Joseph and Benjamin and so forth. So there's Judah, some, non, some son number four. Judah's not a, a role model father or husband. Uh, Judah has lust problems. Judah sleeps around. And Judah married a Canaanite woman. And he had three sons from her. Ur. Onan and Selah, I believe. And uh, Ur grew up and he married uh, a Canaanite woman as well. Uh, his name was Ur because he could never make up his mind. Ur, Ur. But when he did make up his mind, he always chose the wrong thing. And it says after he got married, God, God took his life because he was so evil. And that's all it says. You mean you can get so evil that God's going to take your life, I guess. That's all it says. Well, I, in that economy, it was the second son's duty to step up 
in the brother's shoes so that his, if the second son isn't married yet, to give the wife children so that she can be taken care of with the inheritance thing and so forth. Very important. And so son number two, Onan, says, okay, I'll do my duty. I'll sleep with her, but I'm not giving her kids. And so he just used a very primitive form of birth control. God didn't appreciate that either. So his life was, was snuffed out as well. Sheila was a good bit younger than the other two. And Judas kind of thinking to himself, man, I just lost two sons. And I know the law requires that my other son fulfill this duty. But I don't like the way this is turning out for my sons. Uh, so he tells um, the the his daughter-in-law, Tamar, yeah, when Sheila gets old enough, he'll, you know, he'll be there for you. But he had no intention of making that happen, and she knew it. And so she takes matters into her own hands, and she plays the role of a harlot. She dresses up. She knows where Judah travels and uh, flirts with him a little bit. She has a good disguise on, maybe shows him some leg or something, and he just falls for it, hook, line, and sinker. And then she has children. She has twins, Perez and Zerah. So the point of saying all that is this. You got these guys who, these, these sons, I mean, their, their father slept with whores. Their mother acted like, literally acted like a whore to bring them into the world so she could be, have her inheritance and be taken care of. That's the way the society works. So by all extents... Uh, tents and purposes, uh, they they were a disgrace. I mean, they were born in disgrace with that. And and you would think that that would be all it would take to just drive them wayward the rest of their lives. The whole family's just shot because you, you just can't come into the world under those circumstances and ever make anything out of yourself. And generations later, we read about the remnant coming back to Israel and building the city into this new place to worship the Lord so he can be glorified again. And who's called valiant and who's there? But the sons of Perez, you know, the family of disgrace. And what a powerful way to close a chapter, but to see the grace of God. We, we make our own decisions. It's, it's a reminder that no matter what circumstances we're, we're born into, even disgrace, that doesn't mean that's the path that's set for us. As we choose to do the right thing. Our families can't decide that for us. We have to do our own believing, our own choosing, our own living, our own worshiping. And that's what they did. And they're valiant. Valiant in it, courageous in worshiping the Lord and being a part of his movement. Grace overcoming disgrace. May God bless the preaching of his word.